Hello, everybody, and welcome. My name is Pastor Richard Wesley Johnson. And I'm Dr. Corey Little-Edwards, and this is the Elusive Dream Podcast. And for our listening audience, we have a very special episode, a bonus episode of the full-length interview with Patia Thomas. Yes. Dr. Corey, we felt strongly that uh, we ought to share with our listening audience this full-length interview. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's so much to learn there, and I was uh, really grateful that you had an opportunity to speak with her, and I was like, oh, we got to let our listening audience hear all that she got to say. So Yeah, part of it was because she had so much good stuff to say. That's right, that's right, that's <laughs> and right. Trying to decide what do we talk about, what do we share was, was challenging. It was difficult. So uh, we really want to allow Patia to speak for herself. That's right. And for our listening audience to take this in and take notes and, and ask uh, the same way uh, that prophet in the Old Testament, Micah, said, uh, you know what the Lord has said to you. Mm-hmm. Do justice, love mercy, and walk humbly with your God. So let's see if y'all listening to the Lord. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> you been going with somewhere. I got to meet the pastor I voice know, they, in they here. came out right. You're like, y'all, y'all better pay attention. And you know what else? I mean, Patience is actually, she's doing the work. She's you know? doing the work. She is actually doing this mobilizing. It is indeed her work. It's her job. And so we really wanted to... Um, kind of give her an opportunity to share what what she does, right, in a way that um, many of us, we don't do that, right? It's not our full-time job. And super grateful for the kind of work that pastors are doing Mm -hmm. uh, in this, right, in the in the area of mobilizing and organizing, yet pastors have a lot on their plates, right? It's not their full-time job. And, uh, and they're doing this above and beyond what they do, which is, you know, leading and pastoring a congregation. Mm -hmm. And so really just wanted to take this time to hear what people are doing on the ground who are actually doing this full-time. So I hope you all really tune in. And as Pastor Rich said, take some notes, learn from somebody who's out there in these streets doing the work. Yeah. And one of the organizations that Patia started is Say It Loud Columbus. This is an organization that writes freedom songs mm. and they've actually put together some uh, some songs that are uh, written and uh, put together, you know, by themselves. I don't even know I'm getting the words wrong, uh, but the, this is a grassroots organization and a collective right here in Columbus, Ohio. So you can go to Facebook and look up Say It Loud Columbus. We'll also put a link to uh, Bandcamp where you can listen to their music and download their music and be ready uh, for when the time calls. Come on now. Come on now. Let's listen to this interview with Patia Thomas. All right, so you were just saying uh, that you grew up in an apostolic church and how that sort of impacted your view of leading as a woman. Can you say some more about that? Yeah, you know, I, I grew up in the, in, the, in the 80s and 90s in the apostolic church, and you had to just be very special to be called by God to be a leader in those mm-hmm. times. Um, it, it, you know, you had to have a really strong... Um, you know, almost, uh, yeah, I don't know what to call it. I guess perception, perceived masculine energy. Mm. Um, mm. and, uh, <clears throat> and you had to have gained the respect of, of the men, which is, which was just really hard to do back then. And I think my struggle to embody, uh, the role of a leader, uh, just came from that place of being conditioned that that's not usually, 
Um, you know, we usually take a back seat. We usually are modest. We don't, we don't usually want to. So like one time, um, the pastor, the new pastor, he was younger. He had asked me to, um, to, to like preach at a Bible study and I was ready. Like I, I knew I was called like, even now I'm a heathen and I'm still like, am I supposed to be preaching? Like, um, but you know, I said, yeah, like, I was like, yeah, I got, I got something. I, you know, I have stuff prepared. And he was like, oh, you answered too quick. And I'm like, was I supposed to be like, oh no, you know, you know, it was almost like they expected you to say no and shy away and not like, be assertive. Uh-huh. Yeah. yeah. And, and I was too eager. So I think I learned that, that you're punished for being eager to lead. Um, so then I overcorrected and wanted to just hide and that yeah. that's, that has it never worked. Um, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I like naturally people are drawn to things that I say and do. So I have to learn to like step into that fully and, and continue to be responsible um, in this role. Yeah. And so now as you are leading in this uh, faith-based community organization, uh, what kind of challenges are you being met with leading as a woman and as a black woman? Yeah, that's the part because um, this is a this is very much a woman centered organization, but it mm. is also white centered. Um, mm. I think that they want to include um, and some people want to embed racial equity, but it's still very uh, uh the power dynamics are still very much there. So it is a hierarchical organization. And until recently, um, it was, there were no black people in the, um, in the senior leadership team. Mm. Um, And, you know, so it's just, it's, I feel like there's this constant, like, apology that I'm that I'm reserving um, as I speak out very openly and audaciously about the the um, internalized the organizational white supremacy that we're still experiencing but right now I feel like also there's still some level of respect for who I am in that space and there's value from from uh, at least a like my immediate leadership team, there's mm-hmm. value from them um, for the things that I say. Um, so I think a lot of it, a lot of the challenges there is just one, my fear of being, yes, we can, like I was in the past for doing the same thing. Um, but also two, people, some of the things that I have um, brought up can't be addressed without maybe disrupting somebody else's economics so mm-hmm. at the end of the day there i'm probably still not gonna you know be as mobile as i should be because of because of that you got connected with a faith-based community organization in fact that was uh the organization where I met you um, yeah. as a volunteer. How did you get connected uh, to this to this organization? Yeah, I um I was minding my own business, being a singer. Um, I had been doing um, a civil rights 
show with Bill Cohen, and we were doing a historical recount of the civil rights movement. Um, So yeah, coincidentally, that, that, that just popped out to me just now. And we did one at um, First Congregational Church. And um, after that, um, our friend was looking for a singer and um, they reached out to Tim Aarons um, at First Congregational and Tim recommended Bill Cohen, who I was singing with. And Bill said, why don't you ask Patia? And so um, the first time I met our friend was at the, there were, they were having a, um, Donald Trump had just been elected and they were having a Muslim ban protest. So a mm-hmm. protest against the Muslim ban. Mm-hmm. And there were, I, I don't know, I don't know, 50 to 60 faith leaders of all kinds um, yeah. there. And I, um, I was invited to sing. So that was my intro to mm. this organization um, mm. where I now work. Um, but I just became like, I guess the, the little like Mavis Jr. of um, the local like, you know, movement. And he would, call a, he would call me whenever they're doing a protest. One time Reverend Barber was here and I got to be the singer for that. And uh, that felt very good. I felt very much at home showing up to sing at things that had to do with um, issues that directly affect Black people. Yeah. Um, then I started singing at uh, the the vigils for Edith. Mm. Um, and mm. I did that a few times. And then I like stood up, I guess, for myself because I said, we haven't addressed police uh, brutality and the police killing us. And I don't feel right singing at this, this vigil when we're not, we're not really dealing with stuff that, that directly affects my community. Right. Yeah. We have had uh, too many deaths um, here in Columbus, Ohio. Yeah. Uh, Cases that are still open yet right now have not been, um, been concluded. So you got connected to this faith-based organization now as an employee. Um, why did they why they bring you in? They didn't bring um, you in just to sing. Yeah, no, it was uh it 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 did have a little bit of singing mixed in it at first. Um, but then it was uh it was 2020, um short a few months after Say It Loud, after we started Say It Loud. Um and it was time, you know, the uprising was still happening and the defund conversation was, um, was out here now and we were having it. It was clunky and it was failing, but it was, you know, it was kind of that time where you had to make a stand if, if you're an abolitionist or a reformist. Mm-hmm. Um, and mm-hmm. our organization chose abolition and um, hired me to do a, a two-month contract um, to defund the police. And then uh, the, I, I got in there and learned that that was going to take a little while longer because it was it's a way bigger um, job than just talking about the budget. Yeah. And an issue like defunding the police is not just a local issue. It's not even just a state issue. It's a multi-city, multi-state issue that really would require a great deal of collaboration and yes. intentional focus. 
And so what I hear you saying is that initially they were communicating that they wanted to have that focus. Yeah. Were they, um, were they supportive? It was the time, uh, the, the time and the season. So um, my intro to um, being that, that much involved with an FBCO was, oh, wow, they, you know, they're showing us that they care. They're, we've been crying out um, for le faith leader voices. And they are, you know, there, there's a little bit of history there too, because prior to that, um, a few years prior, that's when, uh, or a couple years prior, that's when um, various uh, Black officers came to a group of a more progressive clergy and mm -hmm. asked for some support in um, protecting them from being harassed inside the, um, the Columbus Division of Police. Right. Um, that, that was a joint effort of different, um, different clergy. And then that effort kind of bifurcated because um, that clergy needed to stick with the seven expectations that came out as a result of that. Mm -hmm. um, and then we needed to um, make sure that we were covering the abolition part more, more than the back the blue situation. Mm -hmm. So, um, so then, like I said, the protests happened. I got in there. I realized that defunding is a behavior um, that requires a systemic approach. And it is one mm -hmm. behavior leading to a reimagined public safety where we no longer perceive that we need police because policing is in itself inherently racist and anti-Black. Right. And so um, then it became like, how can we transform public safety? Because um, the because what's going to happen, like you said, this is not only a multi-state issue. Uh, Joe Biden just got done saying in the State of the Union address that he's going to fund police even more. He's going to increase police funding. And Democrats and Republicans gave him a standing ovation for that. Mm. So this is state-sanctioned violence against our people. And it is, um, it is it, safety as a whole is challenged. So when we're unhoused, we're not safe. So housing is a basic public safety need. Um, access to mental health care services instead of calling the police is a, a very basic safety need that is at issue right now because people have called the police in crisis and been murdered by them. So right. So it's um, so the only way to erode what the what the federal government is trying to keep building is to to chip away at the perceived need for for police. And how can we do that? Well, we need to first make sure everyone has a place to live, make sure that they're safe and stable and have access to what to do in, in times of crisis. Yeah. Uh, so that, there's a lot of layers uh, is what I hear you saying to it. And it's yeah. because it's so multi-layered, it requires that longevity of focus. So Dr. Corey observed in her book that uh, FBCOs generally are locally focused, uh, multi-issue based and time sensitive. And it's that time sensitive sensitivity that they will move on to another um, issue. Um, 
How has that impacted your ability to hone in on the issues that concern you the most when the organization has moved on and they've brought another issue? Yeah, so I guess um, what the first thought that comes to mind is like, it's a rude awakening for me because I didn't know this. I'm new to FBCOs. And Mm -hmm. so I wasn't aware um, about the very, um, uh, very temporal nature of the Mm -hmm. support um, for this work Um, Mm -hmm. and, and how, and the systems that guide it. Um, So, yeah, I'm, you know, I'm currently actually, at a crossroads because um, it is democracy time. So it's time for FBCOs to focus on democracy and to focus on what the primarily white um, funders want them to focus on. And so mm-hmm. since it's been two years since we watched a public execution, that ha- that urgency for many you know, white progressives has died down. And, Mm. and now the funding is going toward, you know, voter protection and things that will last for a season. Um, And so if if I am at a crossroads, um, because I have decided that I need to keep my eyes on the prize and stay in these very alive human collect collectives and coalitions that are building those same systems that we talked about. So non-police response to crisis, that has to be seen through. Um, Mm -hmm. And so um, as a member of the Columbus Safety Collective, I'm committed to seeing that through. Uh, That's why I joined, so I could help make it happen. Yeah, wow. Dr. Corey, you know, it it sounds like uh, your experience is being lived out on the pages of this book, Smart Suits, Tattered Boots. I kept reading this book, like wanting to throw it. Like I stood, when one of I gotta tell you what I said in one of these pages because it was funny. I was like, "Why is she preaching right here?" Because she said, "In some, our interviews indicate that black-centered civic organizations were not a major hub for social mobilization in Ohio cities, while these organizations were well suited to push for the goals of the civil rights movement." Once they achieved their aims, they did not evolve and revitalize their approach. I was like, that's what we're talking about right now. Uh-huh. Like, Say some more on that. What what did what connected with you in in that statement? So this is like a subset of what happened. So like while we have while we have the FBCO like being short-lived support, we have middle class. Um, Black leaders who have reached, you know, a place of comfort and the urgency is no longer as heavy as it was when Mm -hmm. things, you know, were harder. Mm -hmm. So that translates in a couple of ways. It's organizations that don't want to trouble the waters. They have a seat at the table, like the book talks about, and that's a comfort for them. So they're not going to come after the police after all their friends are you know police and stuff like that so there's so much comfort there that that's that's not going to have as much urgency meanwhile 
the progressive whites aren't seeing public execution, so their urgency is going down. Um, yeah, it's just a bummer because like we're still humans and we still have to like chip away at these problems, um, and we and we can't just like chase every squirrel. Um, mm-hmm. We have to, we have to stick to something because if we're not the ones to do it, then who's you know who who is it then? Exactly, exactly. Well, I have to imagine, uh, Patient, that there's some challenges that you are really facing here. I mean, you're an African American woman who started a grassroots organization and linked also to a faith based community organization. Um, what are, what are some challenges you're facing personally, whether it's in the grassroots side or the um, or leading as an African American woman? Yeah, I guess the first thing is um, my um, my I think like call to leadership might be um, I might be greater than what I initially intended. So like I was just trying to like get the get stuff done I wasn't really trying to step into a situation where like I was leading it but here we are and um I think that some of the biggest challenges are like you know I'm poor I'm not middle class so Mm -hmm. I am uh my co my colleague said that's what you get for hiring people (laughs) who are directly impacted by the issues I'm directly impacted by this. I am black. I'm in this black body. I have a whole black family. I have a black son who's 22 and large and has schizophrenia Mm. and has no access um, besides 911. And Mm. so we are, I'm constantly uh, at risk. um, And my family is constantly at risk. And so I can't afford to be diverted and keep doing stuff when I'm relying on people that I'm in coalition with to help get our lives better as a whole. So it's, I can't subtract myself from it like these supportive organizations can. And if they leave, then I have to worry about my housing security because Mm -hmm. I'm not going to leave with them, (laughs) you know? So uh, it, it's just exhausting to have to just live in a world where white supremacy rules and white elite money decides what is important and whose narratives are told and who is safe. Yeah, and you're talking about really an, or an organization making decisions that some would consider liberal. Um, and making decisions that are impacting what some people would say are liberal issues. So it should be a no-brainer that they continue to support, you know, those initiatives. However, um, this organization that you're connected to is led uh, by a white woman and even here stateside, uh, a white male. And, And so here we are facing those challenges along the lines of race, even in a faith-based community organization. Yeah, and you know, it's kind of unfortunate because uh, I don't think that, I don't know that they understand 
their role in it. Um, and, um, that's the, that's hard, you know, because I think (coughs) well-meaning, well-meaning liberals, um, is just, uh, we often find ourselves in this place because once, um, once their own personal security is at risk, then, you know, they're faced with a choice also. So how do we fortify ourselves to be less reliant on, on that system? Because at the end of the day, as the kids are saying, we, the work still has to get done for, for us. Right. So um, imagine if you will, you're in a group of um, African-American clergy and local leaders what is your message to that group about mobilization and supporting uh, one another and maybe even supporting you in this work? Hmm. I think the first thing that comes to mind about mobilizing and supporting each other is that um, when I started this, um, when I started the defund campaign, I thought about the story of of Esther um, and uh, how Vashti had been, you know, excommunicated for Mm. things like standing up for herself and Mm. being rebellious. (laughs) Um, And so maybe this might have been why Esther was afraid to do the same thing. Who knows? But knowing that you are a black human being in Columbus, Ohio. And yes, we've seen people lose their lives for standing up, but you are at the kingdom for such a time as this. And if if you don't speak up, like who do who do who do you think you are? Like we're all going to perish. So we have we it is our duty, it's our responsibility. Um to when we talk about the kingdom come and God's will being done on earth, it's God's will that that we're all safe, um, that we are no longer oppressed. Um, you know, the Isaiah talks about the fast that God has chosen chosen would let the oppressed go free. Mm-hmm. So we, if we don't do something, we will perish together with the people that we're seeing perish. So. Um, and, and I think that second part, I really just wish I knew the answer to that. Um, it's hard for me to even know what to ask for to support me, but I think that it's, it's important to remember that there's power when people talk about what you opened with, which is power, um, in faith voices, faith leaders, voices have the power we've seen Mm -hmm. faith voices help erode our reproductive decisions. So mm. we know that the, that the faith world has political power, whether mm. we want to believe in a separation of a church and state is really irrelevant at this time because we people of faith help guide political decisions. Mm-hmm. So we have to do the work. Um, Eyes on the prize is just something that I constantly remind myself of whenever I get exhausted because we haven't made it yet. Um, Mm. And we're still, we're still, we're still getting there. Yeah. 
we are we are we are we are and it's um it's really uh from folks like yourself who are taking the the opportunities that are in front of them and not being deterred like i really appreciate just hearing about your resilience here and your focus um and it your focus is coming from a place of personal need but where you're also seeing you know, those needs that are right around you that others are being ignorant you know about so what other words would you like to share just as uh we start to wrap up this interview um, I think I feel like I've been saying a lot of words. <laughs> I'm 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 truly um, glad that I discovered this book. So thank you for introducing me to it. It's bittersweet to to learn um, this level of information. Um, but I think I think um, we stumbled upon a, a, a like a strategy, which is like you know, what now knowing that these are lily pads and not permanent, like, you know, structures, mm -hmm. um, but it's a good idea to look into ways in which we can stay focused um, on reaching our goals and remaining innovative so that we don't ossify like, <laughs> like this author called it. I was like, I Googled that word. I was like, yes, yes. <laughs> you gonna um, use that. <laughs> yes. It's so good. Like, don't get bone dry. Like, um, so yeah, staying agile and mobile and like understanding that we are in this together where mm -hmm. there's, you know, there's some division among us. Um, but we, but if we focus on the fact that we are, this is for our people, the liberation of us, um, and, 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 and pull together our resources and supports, I, I think we can get somewhere. I think we can, I think we can revolutionize some things. So good. Mm. So good. Mm -hmm. I hope y'all enjoyed that. I hope y'all enjoyed that. <laughs> well, hey, y'all, that's all we got for you today. But you know what? What, what Dr. Corey? <laughs> <laughs> the dream may be elusive. But it is attainable. attainable. Thank y'all for listening today. All right, deuces. Peace. <laughs>